welcome to Australia and Hunger. I'm your host, Ben. On today's show, a very special episode with David Ellis and Alex Hogg, the hosts of the 9A podcast. I don't think it'd be controversial in calling it Australia's premier prog cast. They've been long-time friends of the show. I've mentioned them a couple of times. Alex got in contact with me, I believe, over a year ago, just to sort of chat about the podcast. And I think the assumption always was that we would record an episode together. But, you know, they're both very busy gentlemen, uh, both with the podcast and their outside lives. And, you know, it took a while to get up. But finally, we had a chat, and it is a long one, over two hours. And we go into, you know, the sort of very basic stuff about the podcast. We talk a little bit about interviews, which is something that we've gone back and forth about sort of discussing. You know, obviously prog music and a bunch of other things, including um, you know, the lockdown, where we see live music going from here, uh, podcasting in general, and you know a lot of other things. I really thank the guys for giving me such a long time for chatting, and I encourage everyone to check out their Patreon set up a few weeks ago, which they discuss a couple of topics which I really enjoy, um, which they may not normally say is a, a fit for the show, or maybe they don't have enough time to spread it out over the duration of their hour, hour and a half shows. And it kind of gives a, a more relaxed kind of feel to it. And I, I really enjoy that kind of style of podcasting. I encourage everyone to see the Patreon link in the description, head on over and describe. Um, Alex and David, I really appreciate them taking the time for me. This is The Boys from the 9-8 Podcast. For people who aren't familiar with you guys, and everyone should be, um, but just introduce yourself, you know, just so people know which voice is which. Okay, so my name is Alex Hogg, uh, born and raised in, uh, in Perth, Western Australia, and uh, one half of the, the 9-8 podcast. And my name is David Ellis, uh, born and raised in Sydney, uh, in Australia, please don't hold that against me, um, with a couple of little flutes overseas, um, and I am the other half of the 9-8 podcast and one third of the Dream Theatre Fan Club of Australia and New Zealand, along with Hoggy himself as well. For fans of the 9-8 podcast, forgive us if we're going over a couple of old things. David and Alex, how did you guys meet? I think it was when I travel. I travelled up. Well, actually, I'd been a fan. Well, you, you, and the other, for the the other one third of the Dream Theater Fan Club of Australia and New Zealand, Simo. You guys had been running the Dream Theater Fan Club for quite some time. I joined that. I think sometime in 2013. And then when Dream Theater came to play in Sydney, which I think was in 20, was it 2014 at Luna Park? Yeah. So rubbish. Yeah. We met at the Luna Park gig. Um, and then you joined. Yeah, well, you guys had organised a meetup, which yeah. I joined up with. And then I, I distinctly remember you. I remember saying to you, you know, because you got. I think by that point you had something like five or six hundred people as a part of that group. Mm. And I said because we were meeting at a pub that was near Luna Park, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying to you guys, "Ah, you should have had flyers because we were literally sitting past and dragging. But anyone who walked past in a Dream Theater show, you were literally dragging into the pub saying, "Hello, come and join us. You know, we're here for the Dream Theater show." Mm-hmm. And I said to you, "Ah, oh, you should have had flyers. You should have had, you know, like a little business card or something to hand out to tell people about the the fan club." Mm-hmm. And it was after that I got in touch with you, guys. and then. So that was how we met, and we sort of chit-chatted about for a while there, and then it was, it was when you went off to Berlin, I think, mm. if I remember correctly, and then you said, you and Simo came to me and said, how would you like to be help run the Dream Theater Fan Club in Dave's absence yeah. while he's not around? So that was how we, I think, unless you've got anything else to add, Dave, I think that's how we met. Yeah, that's it's sort of the short version. That's basically it. Um, and then you and I became reasonably close because at the time you were living in Canberra, 
from memory. Um, and yes, you came that's up right. and yeah. stayed at my place once or twice or something to go to a couple of shows. Uh, yeah, and, I came. Yeah, I came. Um, I, yeah, that's right. I remember I was doing. We came up for a Solkiri show at the old Blackwire Records. Mm, that's right. Rest in peace, Black. Rest in peace, Blackwire Records. And I remember saying on Facebook, I was like, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna like uh, drive up to the show." Like, how crazy am I for thinking I could drive from Canberra to Sydney up the Hume Highway, do the show, and then drive back down the Hume Highway back to Canberra? And you got in touch with me and basically said, "You're mad. Don't do it." Mm. Um, I've got a spare place. I've got a spare room at my place. You can come stay with me. Mm. And I think that's how we sort of, after that, it was when we sort of got to chatting regularly. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think I think I'm pretty sure that's that's about it. And yeah, then when I took off overseas, we had the three arms, I suppose, of the of the fan club. So we had uh, Simo here in Sydney and yourself over in West Oz, um, and then myself over in Europe. Um, which actually wound up leading to that fan club becoming part of the DT World fan club as well because um, the guys from uh, the DT World, the main sort of hub of all the Dream Theater fan clubs and such, got in contact with me when I was over there. Um, and he said, yeah, it's a good thing you're in Germany at the moment, otherwise I wouldn't have called um, because there's no way I'm staying up to one o'clock, um, which is totally <laughs> fair. Um, so yeah, so that's that's sort of how we met, I suppose. Dream Theater, common music is probably the the short answer to your question. I want to go a little bit into the Dream Theater fan club later on. Um, mm. for, for the moment, sort of uh, starting off with a couple of more basic things. How did the podcast start? <laughs> well, wanting, I was going to say, without wanting to beat on my own chest about this, the podcast was effectively my idea. I'd been around. I'd been around on a progressive rock forum, and there was a discussion. Someone, someone else wanted to start up a podcast, and I've I've been listening to podcasts for years, many, many different podcasts of you know, tech and um, other types of podcasts. And so the idea sort of sort of titillated me because I've always been someone who talks a lot. Shock, surprise to nobody who knows me. Uh, and so I had the idea. It was like, oh yeah, this is this sounds like a, a fun thing to do. Get involved in a prog rock podcast. And then the, the 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 idea sort of broke down. The person who was interested in it um, was was definitely from a, a radio, definitely very much like a radio background. Mm. Um, me myself, I have no journalistic sort of background. I've never I didn't do it at university and not worked for. I did work for some for Express Magazine um, years and years ago when I was not working in the industry that I work in now. So I had a little bit of exposure to sort of writing and doing going to a lot of gigs and so i was uh, when that broke down i thought well no bugger it i'm gonna keep going with this idea of trying to set up a prog rock podcast and i remember being at uh big prog my friend in barcelona in this was the first time i was there so it was 2017 and i remember seeing a comment on the internet by someone who'd seen animals as leaders and said that animals as leaders was quote not prog which annoyed me to death and it got me thinking Mm. i was like what the hell is prog and I thought it'd be a fun little exercise to talk about prog music on the internet. Mm. And when I was scouting around for a co-host, I thought I immediately thought of Dave. I was like, oh yeah, you know, he's a he's a journalist, so he'll he'll have some input there. He's been a music journalist for some time. You, what I was also looking for was someone to edit the show because I don't <laughs> know how to use Pro Tools. Dave does, so he. I was like, okay, I need I need someone who's got a journalistic background, and I need someone who can edit the podcast for me. So I, I said to Dave, I said, well, do, you want, do you want to do a podcast? And that was where it sort of started. We did one sort of semi-abortive thing on Facebook Live about a year before we started the, the actual mm. podcast itself, uh, which is a real 
deep. I, don't, I, I was wondering I don't when know. you were going to bring up the, the video <laughs> that we did, which was basically <laughs> us just yelling into the void and a whole bunch of your cricketing mates jumping on there and throwing obscene slurs at us. Yes, exactly. Basically me being shit-talked by the people I play cricket with, yes. Yep, yep. Um, the, <laughs> the, I suppose the answer is, yeah, it was Hoggy's idea. Um, we did a trial of it as a video that was about, yeah, about a year, almost to the day, prior to us launching the actual podcast. Um, and then we just sort of, it sort of just became a thing that we, we started to do. Um, you know, we, we try and record, well, we do record an episode every fortnight um, and try and give ourselves a break over the Christmas period um you know sometimes record a couple in tandem and there's a few episodes that we've got in backlog that you know if one of us is sick or something we can put something out some timeless kind of things um and then more recently we've been doing the stuff with patreon as well so we've been doing we've been having people you know jump in there's bonus content on our patreon page and access to interviews early and and things like that so um it's good it's it's a lot of fun i you know the editing is can be grueling um especially sometimes when we jump around and things like that but it's uh, it's it's good fun, um, but entirely Hoggy's idea. Um, I agree with him on that. David, I was sort of more interested in your background as a music journalist. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think you've ever ever gotten much into it, but you have mentioned that you were at one stage doing a pretty rigorous um, routine of photographing gigs. Yeah. Um, so I started out as a music journalist, uh, two thousand and eight. Um, so I was down i was actually studying law um at wollongong university and i started doing a monthly um editorial piece about music for um for the the turton gala which is like the university newspaper it was a, actually a like a magazine thing but they called it the newspaper and um we i, I that's where i started out and i realized i had a bit of a knack for it and also realized that i hated law um so <laughs> I got out of that, um, went and did a music degree, and while I was doing that, um, I got in touch with, I actually put a post up on Facebook and said, hey, does anyone know how I'd potentially get into music journalism? And I had a good friend of mine, um, his brother actually messaged me and said, hey, I know this guy called Larry Heath, um, who's just started up this thing called the AU Review, you know, hey, maybe you'd be interested in doing some stuff with that. Um, so I joined the AU Review and I was there for oh, years, I was there until 2015, uh, end of 2015 when I came, well, actually when I was living overseas. Um, and then I went and did a, a did a journalism degree during that time as well and um, did a whole bunch of other things as well. Um, but yeah, you're right. Um, I also did, when I got back from, from Europe, I was pretty heavily getting back into shooting gigs and photography and such. And I was out Thursday, Friday, Saturday, sometimes even Sunday nights um just shooting live gigs and and you know doing it for basically door charge or or you know by the end of it i was getting requests and people coming in saying we'll pay you and such which was nice um but it was really good because it exposed me to a lot of new music and a lot of stuff that i wouldn't necessarily have listened to um especially in the editor position at the au because you'd have to put up you know top five singles of the week and things like that and being in more indie sort of focused magazine wasn't really my cup of tea, but it um, it expanded my my knowledge a long way, um, and it was really good. And I'm really thankful for the experience that I had there. 
just in that, Dave, power to you for recognizing halfway through a law degree that you hated law, because I know lawyers who've made it through their entire degree several years <laughs> into their career before they've acknowledged that they hate law. <laughs> so power to you for recognizing halfway through that you didn't like law. You, you guys don't sort of discuss your day jobs that much, but I'm wondering if that sort of has petered out since then. To, to what extent does music journalism form your life outside of 9-8? Uh, for me, it forms zero part of it. I work in a completely different industry. Um, you know, without going into too much detail, for various reasons, I work in the mining industry uh, over here in Western Australia. Uh, so the music journalism part of it is about... You know, I briefly, like back in 2013 when the economy crashed and I was out of a job, uh, I started working for Express Magazine over here just as like an unpaid contributor reporting, like going to live gigs. So... Most of the time it was gigs that I was going to anyway, and so they would just kind of put me on the door, and I would just go there and, and write. Mm. Um, <laughs> I remember my very first article I wrote for them, actually, I, 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 it was a band called, they're not around anymore, so as far as I'm concerned, I can say what I like about them now. It was a band called Electric Toad, and it was essentially a jam of all the bands that had appeared on that night. So it was something like three drummers, five keyboard, five guitarists, two keyboard players, and three bass players on stage. This was at the Roseman Hotel, and it was an absolute mess. We we know for a fact a as well that that's far too many keyboardists for the night to run smoothly. Uh, yes, so. exactly. And it, it was just, it was a complete disaster. It sounded like rubbish, and I said as much in my thing, mm. and um, they cursed me out on their Facebook page. Um, I don't know whether you do much swearing on this, but they basically called me a cunt on their Facebook page, which was great fun, which... I only found out about when my editor sent me the thing, and he he sent me a link to the thing with the with the the subject line. In the email was "You're famous." <laughs> so my very first gig review, and I got slagged off by the band that I was reviewing because <laughs> I didn't much like what they were doing. I remember one of the first ones I ever did was reviewing a band um, by the name. They're now called Copia, but back in the day they were called The Sound Mind, and one of their support acts. Um, they're setting up, and they were doing sound check and everything. And they decided to play, uh, it was a Tool song, I, I think it was Schism, I think. I think, I think from memory. Either way, they were playing it in the wrong time signature. Yeah, I was going to say, if you got to pick that one, it's a rather difficult song to play. Um, you, you, better be, you better be good. <laughs> and, this, and I noted so much in my, in my review. I said, you know, the, the band itself was actually halfway decent, but... You know, when they were doing sound check and such, this is what they were doing, and not the smartest move to make, lads. You know, I, I noted that. Anyway, I got belted for it by these guys. They jumped on there, called me a this and a that, and oh, mate, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, but to answer your question about um, what, to what extent does it sort of make our life outside of this, um, for me, music is very much a way of life so i kind of listen to a lot of it i'm fortunate i'm in the media industry um so i sort of get to hone my media skills and such outside of this um which is nice but generally speaking the 98 podcast very much stands on its own and i try and keep my professional life and my personal life if that makes sense um very much separate from one another um so yeah so that's just kind of how kind of how i operate i suppose this is something I really struggled with. I had a massive list of all different potential names, variations of names um, for the podcast. <laughs> you know, I had people give me stupid ideas about what to call it, some in jest, some serious, but they're all rubbish. And I was sort of going through variations. I looked for, like, 
references to to music, but also to like like the the, the idea being that it's an Australian podcast about you know metal music and interviews. But then I couldn't incorporate the idea of interviews, so eventually I came up with this name, which I'm very proud with. Australian Hunger, a reference to, obviously, Dark Thrones album, Transylvanian Hunger. And I was like, that's such a clever reference, and it kind of captures as much about the show that I can. For you guys, what was that process like, and why did 9-8 stick? Hoggy? <laughs> uh, well, the, the, the name of the show came from... It was, the, the, it was my idea for the name of the show. Originally, we want, I, wanted to get the, I wanted to get the word prog in there. I wanted to. I wanted to. If I had it my way, and no barriers, I would have called it something like the Oz Prog Podcast. Unfortunately, someone else has already got that as a title. When I was googling around, I was like, "Oh rats!" Someone else has already got like Oz Prog. Ooh. I believe Andrew Saltmarsh was a big um, follower on that forum for quite a long time, Ooh. actually. So, and I, so I wanted to come up with something that let people know that the show was about music, and that it was about music that was a bit different or a little bit more obscure, <clears throat> and with our first logo, which was basically a clip art job it was the it was the musical staff lines with the time signature nine eight and then the nine eight podcast written underneath it so i thought that that would let people know that it a it was about music mm. and b that it was about sort of different kind of progressive kind of music and the way that nine eight came about it literally was it was like i know that dream theater's voices is in nine eight that song is in nine eight and i thought oh yeah that'll, that was like that kind of time signature kind of stuck in my mm. head so i thought well the nine eight podcast sounds like a good one and then months later, and I'm talking probably six months ago now, um, I had a friend of mine, Simon Skipper, um, he said to me, you know, I think you missed a really good opportunity just to call it the Progcast. And I looked at it looked at Hoggy and just went, oh, for fuck's sake. The problem that we have is when you search for the word prog on any app you want to pick for podcasts overcast podcast addict even itunes mm. you search for the word prog our podcast does not come up at all so we have completely screwed ourselves into a corner because if we called it the progcast mm. we would have had it nailed mm. Mm. <laughs> yeah there's one of the really difficult things about seo um <laughs> i don't think i actually haven't time searched in a while maybe it's getting up there in some respects is australian hunger like that sort of phrase is not no one else really uses it but I remember when I was first sort of starting out and searching Australian hunger, like it just comes up with statistics about, you know, hunger in Australia, like um, people... <laughs> like poverty. Yeah, or like yeah. yeah. So it's, it's a, it's a, SEO can be a very weird thing. Um, but maybe you should yep. just be calling it the 9-8 Progcast now. You could do. Trying to rebrand now 60-something-odd episodes in would be a bit tricky. <laughs> What about the theme song? I, I'm, I feel like I, possibly I'm an idiot and it's some recognisable song that I don't know or maybe it's David's <laughs> handiwork. I'm not entirely sure. Which, which is it? Yeah, that's mine. You are 100% <laughs> correct. It's all Dave. I asked him to come up with something. Uh, I, asked him, I was like, well, we need a bit of music here, Dave. So over to you. You, I, I play no music, so over to you. You come up with something. And he came up with the theme, uh, the, what it was. Um, ostensibly, I was hoping that the it would have been in nine eight. Um, I'll let you finish the rest of the story now. I was Dad. about I was about to say uh, we were actually talking about this today on the podcast that we we recorded today. Um, we've got a mate of mine um, who, who's the drummer from um, Polaris. I'm sure you know the band Polaris, and um, he just listened to an interview I did with Harry Myrie, 
and he was like, yeah, cool. Like, you know, because I've been trying to get him for ages to come on the show. And he said, yeah, cool. Let's do it in the next couple of weeks and da 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 Just one question. Why isn't your podcast theme song in 9-8? And we're like 60-odd episode in and someone finally asks. So <laughs> I think I'm going to have to change it now to something in 9-8. Um, but it was, yeah, it was recorded by me at home in my studio. Um, just, yeah, that's, that was sort of how it came about. I think it does a good job of portraying sort of what we, what we're about. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see every single thing. So all the music that you hear in the show, that's not actual music from another band is generally done by me, um, edited together and such and yeah, all that kind of stuff. Nice. No, I, I, I'm a big fan of, um, you know, I, I don't consider myself a very successful musician, but I'm a big fan of people sort of, even if they don't have much talent, trying to make a, uh, their own kind of theme songs rather than just use some random track they've found or mm. anything like that. Well, the problem, was with, the problem was with that, if we wanted to use somebody else's music, we figured, for the longest time, we figured we were going to get done for copyright or something. And with, Spot- with Spotify now being a big player in the podcast market, they are getting remarkably draconian when it comes to, like, nicking other people's stuff on mm. podcasts. So if you're using another, pe- like, even a snippet of a song is starting to cause problems in the pot, like, with Spotify taking over the podcasting market and owning things like Anchor and Stitcher and other other podcasting platforms. So... At least with using our own music as a theme song, we're not going to get done in over copyright issues. Yeah, well, that, that's a really weird thing about podcasts. Until very recently, they were not very formalised. I mean, it's RSS feeds. It's not controlled by any centralised organisation. And I, I don't think there's ever been really that much interest on the path of podcast hosts to do copyright checks, unlike other platforms like Google. But then mm. when it gets filtered into other sort of platforms that's when people problems are going to start well yeah and it's also like i know i've you know because i listen i listen to sort of podcasts from big podcasting platforms you know on five by five and relay fm and those guys are getting increasingly nervous about spotify and how that's gonna change especially when they're talking about topics that are maybe not necessarily particularly sort of you know like you know free and easy and non-controversial topics or talking about certain issues, they're getting really nervous with Spotify getting involved in it because the whole point of the podcasting, podcasting itself has been around for well, nearly 15 years now. And for the longest time, like you said, it's been RSS. It's literally just open to anyone who wants to download the feed. But now that Spotify is getting involved in it, it's, you know, there's starting to be some uncomfortable noises being made from longtime heavyweights in the podcasting industry. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. They can, they can go fuck themselves. I'm, I'm disgusted by it, to be honest. <laughs> And it's going to be, it's, it's not just some weird thing which is over the horizon or theoretical. It's happening right now. So there's a podcast mm. which I didn't, I didn't no longer listen to, but I did for a while um, called Last Podcast on the Left. They're, they're, they're pretty big. Oh, yeah. yeah. They yeah. moved over yeah, a little I while ago, one. and now you can't get them on our RSS feeds. Joe Rogan's going to be moving. There are quite a few podcasts. Joe Rogan's going to be moving yep. over, who's one of the, the biggest podcasts. Some of the big true crime podcasts as well are doing the same thing. Mm. They've put, I know my, my wife is a big listener of true crime podcasts and some of the stuff is behind a paywall now. Yeah. And it's infuriating when you want to go listen to a podcast and go through the back catalog. Part of the appeal, I think, of, of listening to a podcast is going through that back catalog and starting in the first episode and seeing the show develop. But now people have got that stuff behind a paywall. Yep. And it's, yeah. And those paywalls are owned by Spotify. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's irritating. It's terrible because um, Spotify has a lot of different incentives 
than you know just a host. The hosts don't really care what you do, and it's changing this sort of very free thing. So I've, I've got um, you know you guys. So I, I've got this weird setup where I download all my podcasts and I keep them away on a hard drive. But I don't use, I don't listen to them. It's just because I like collecting them. But then for the podcast I actually listen to, I use two apps. One for um, just regular podcasts, like your you guys' um, public feed, and then your private feed I've got connected to a different app because that can connect to Patreon. But the fact is I can basically access all your content using two RSS feeds on Ooh. a variety of different apps. I can do it on my computer. I can do it on you know, iPhone. I can do it on whatever and not be too worried about any implications from that because it's just a host, right? But Spotify has, you know, it, it's not, it's interested in podcasts because of, you know, other things. It's not its primary sort of, it's not, well, I'm paying the host so they don't really care as long as I pay them money, right? Whereas Spotify wants to keep subscribers, it wants to get advertising and listener counts and all that things. And yeah, it's, it's, it's really worrying. It's sort of disrupting this sort of beautiful market from which so much of, I, I listen to podcasts like all day, every day. And it's, you know, potentially disrupting that beautiful market. Just having said that, I, the fact is that I think I listen to a lot of podcasts which don't really go for that kind of model or never really would be on Spotify. But for, like, just in general, it's, it's, I find it very disturbing. For people that want to become professionals as well, where you've got the host of the podcast, the platform the podcast is on, and potentially, like, provider of advertisers as the podcast being one person, that's really dangerous. I mean, for the longest time, the podcasting is, like, the hosts of the podcast, the podcasting platform, and the advertisers have all been three separate entities. But if you're going to try and amalgamate that under one roof, that gets really dodgy very quickly, and especially if Spotify want to try and, I don't know, silence a particular podcaster that they don't like what's happening or they think is not advertiser-friendly, then that podcast can just disappear out the back, out, out the window. In terms of, like, especially when we're talking about SEO-type stuff, you know, Spotify start monkeying around with that, it gets really dangerous, really dangerous very, very quickly. Mm. And as well as the sort of antitrust issues of um, uh, combining different functions, you've got antitrust issues in just in terms of pure size, where it um, it just becomes massive. It absorbs all sort of audio medium, and you know therefore it's just this massive behemoth which you have to be on its good side in order to you know make profit out of. Yeah, go and ask you go and ask the YouTubers how that one works out for them. How do you guys prepare for a show? What's what's the two weeks leading up to, or any any time prior? What what's that look leading up to um, you know, recording a podcast episode? What do you have ready? What what kind of um, sort of pre organization do you need to do for that? Two weeks is very generous. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> it's usually about three, usually about four or five days before the show. It's like. We don't we don't actually record the podcast on the same day every time we do it. The podcast usually goes out on this usually goes out on a Wednesday or a Thursday. Um, every usually and usually but usually gets recorded sometime on the weekend. Oh. <clears throat> uh, historically, that's been because I've had an appallingly bad internet connection up until very recently here, and the only time that I could record podcasts reliably was really early in the morning on a weekend when no one else was awake and I wasn't having bandwidth issues. Which caused some hilarious problems. Hashtag um, thank you, Aaron in the pod. Yes, exactly. Thank you very much, uh, Malcolm Turnbull. <clears throat> so the way that the podcast, tend, at least the way that I tend to prepare for a show, is I'm always active on, pretty active on on Facebook and on other 
news sites and stuff like that. And if I see if something comes across my radar that I think, oh, or something as a particular something that blows up as like a big hot button issue in um, in music, I save it to a private Facebook save list that I have between Dave and I. Um, we also collate feedback from our listeners, um, from, you know, from, um, he's almost like the unofficial third host now, but, uh, a good friend of ours, Joshua Batten, who lives in Melbourne, <clears throat> excuse me, he'll send us links and things that we should talk about or things that, you know, new music and you know, he's quite active in a lot of forums as well. So he, so that it's usually, a, it's usually, it starts, the preparation for the show starts as just a massive collection of literally anything that we want to talk about. And then at some point, usually the day before the show, uh, I'll sit down and kind of work out a, a sort of a rough running order for how things are going to go. And then at that point, Dave will Dave will come will, will come in and he, he'll be sent, he'll be saving links as well and looking at different things and new music that's coming out. Uh, I tend to look more about the new stuff. I think Dave, it's pretty fair to say that you tend to look for the normal the new music that's coming out. Yeah, pretty much. That's mostly due to the fact that I'm collating that playlist um and i'm pretty active with people sending me stuff and saying hey check this out or hey check that out or or something like that um but the division of labor so far as how it works with with our podcast is i do all of the editing and all of the uploading and making sure that everything is all schmick and and so on so forth i deal with the the fireside back end and so 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 on so forth hoggy very much does a lot of the the pre scripty kind of stuff and, you know, making sure that all the show notes are there for us to follow and such. Um, and making sure that's all up to date, um, you know, keeps his eye on the, on the news and, and so on and so forth. Um, that's basically how sort of how we divide it, divide the labor. So it's very much Hoggy's, um, show, I suppose, when it comes to doing the, the, the pre-show stuff, um, he's he's actually extremely good at it as well, and I wouldn't want to take it off him because I'd probably just fuck it up. So, um, <laughs> um, yeah. And in terms of links, you guys got a couple of different shows. You might talk about a topic for the whole thing. You might go track mm-hmm. by track through an album, or you might feature an interview. How do you go about working out which kind of show you're looking to make that fortnight? Um, that very much just depends on what's come out so we may have for example the the episode that we were supposed to record today was supposed to be the new haken album um but that for some reason got pushed back to july 10 or something so we did another album that we said we were going to do um it just kind of depends on what's been released and what's been happening and um we sort of look at what's going on in the world and and sort of go okay we should probably talk about that it helps as well because we've got the different sections in our show. So because we've got the news section, there's a lot of stuff that we can kind of put in the news section that we don't necessarily have, therefore have to make it a whole topic of a show. And because we've got the Patreon stuff and we've got the after show stuff, we can talk about some stuff in there. So the last few episodes we've actually been gearing a little bit more toward um, doing full album reviews and, and so on and so forth. Um, but if something pressing comes up, then we'll be like, okay, cool. So here's what we're, we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about blah. Um, mm. it, it's, it's a little bit, it's sort of a little bit fly by seat of pants, you know, a couple of weeks before and just sort of watch some things and things like that. Um, I think from memory, there was an episode really early on Hoggy where we 
recorded we no we sat down to record and just before we recorded some massive piece of news came up and we just went right that's what we're talking about um so we're pretty fluid this has also happened se- this has also happened several times where we've had a show recorded <laughs> it's in the bag and then something has blown up between us recording the show and us putting it out and this is oh, this has happened several times where we've had to literally sit down record sections of a show and then bolt them into the show after the fact Ooh. To try and get them in because some late breaking issue. I think this has happened. This happened when happened when Neil Peart died. Mm. Happened when Dream Theater tour dates got announced after we'd recorded a show, mm. uh, where we had to, and then things got moved around as well. Um, the the way that we've decided what shows to do has definitely evolved over time. It start we start that you listen, you look at our first probably ooh, ten to twelve episodes are very much topic based. Mm. Uh, there's a reason for that as well, is that rather stupidly, I decided to start a podcast right before going away on a five-week holiday to Europe. So we ended up having, I think we ended up recording, what did we record, Dave? Like four or five episodes before we ever actually put them out? Six episodes, <clears throat> back to back. Yeah, six episodes over the course of a couple of weeks before we went, and then launched the podcast while it was on holidays, which was a really stupid idea. We never should have done what that. What was really stupid about it was the fact that we got to five weeks into your holiday and went, you're away for seven weeks and we've only recorded six. Shit. Um, <laughs> yes. And that was when the first which interview episode came along. That was the one with genetics yeah, or Voyager? Genetics, yeah. Genetics, yeah. yeah. It's interesting, the, and the, inter- the interview episodes, more often than not, they usually it's mostly us reaching out to people to say, "Would you like to come on the show?" Either just to talk about stuff or to talk about a new album that we released. The first couple of episodes, the interviews, Dave's absolutely one hundred percent right. We were caught short because I was away on holiday. We started doing interviews, and we quickly realised actually that we pick up a lot of our new listeners through interviews that we do. I have met so many uh-huh. people who've come to us at shows or at events we've been at. And like, oh yeah, I found the show because of the the episode that we did with the, you did actually, Dave, with Voyager. I must have had twenty or thirty people come up to me and say, "Oh yeah, I listened to your podcast because the show you did with Voyager, mm. or the show that we did with Chaos Divine." And just to pull back the curtain even further, that actually is how I heard about your podcast, Ben. It was your interview that you did with Tangled Thoughts of Leaving that got me into your show. Mm. Yeah, it's um the the cynical uh, take on that is that we are leveraging people with much bigger fan bases to get listeners. <laughs> <laughs> it is so true. It's really icky to kind of talk about in a funny sort of way, but it is totally 100% true. There is, and this ha- But this happens across all media. Mm. This isn't just podcasts. This is everybody's doing it. Mm, absolutely. And you'd be, the thing is, something that I've found is that if you're generally pretty good to deal with and so on and so forth, I mean... Progfest has been such a big thing for me and meeting people and that really has helped us with getting interviews and, and so on and so forth. But if you're generally pretty good to deal with and you're generally, you know, you're not, I mean, <laughs> no one's doing podcasting for the money, right? Um, and we're just genuinely interested in people's stories and, and their, you know, just having a chat with them really um, and getting them to talk about whatever it is that they're talking about. It's... um we've had such a really positive reaction to that. Um, and Hoggy's right. We've had people come up to us at shows and gone, I, I was at the From Back to Rock show with Jordan Rudess um, at the Opera House. And I was talking to Jordan after the show and this guy just comes up to me and goes, hey man, are you are you Dave from the 9-8 podcast? And I went, uh, yeah. 
And he went, yeah, man, I thank you so much for everything you do. It's, it's, you know, it means a lot to me and da, 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 da. And what that kid didn't know was the fact that I'd just lost my job two weeks prior. So to hear that sort of come back full circle was actually really nice and, and sort of a bit of an ego boost for someone who just literally been booted by his um his company because they didn't have enough work for me so um yeah it's it is interesting the the way that the show has evolved and and sort of how we how we sort of structure things um now we try and put out interviews sort of in between other episodes as well um just to sort of (laughs) space things out a bit um and you know feature some decent bands and all that sort of stuff um you know, it's very difficult to get some of the bigger names, but sometimes we do, and it's it's really nice to do that. So, mm, some some of the episodes actually remind me quite a bit of when I used to do radio. To be honest, like this sort of very variable kind of show where, like with my show, it might go for half an hour, it might go with for like three hours occasionally. Um, but we, gee, don't we know about that one, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> I think our shortest episode was I think the episode that I, the interview that I did with Mike Mills backstage in the men's room at Badlands. Mm-hmm. Don't be creepy. And I think that went for maybe twenty minutes. And then on the flip side to that was the gargantuan episode that we did with Nick Barrett, which oh I swear God. to God ran for three and a half hours or something. It was huge. God help you, Dave, when you have to interview and ep- edit stuff like that. Uh-huh. You know. <laughs> I think I did a, a five-minute interview with one of the guys from a Monomath one time. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes when you're in radio, that's all the time you get. It's like there's a podcast actually that I listen to, uh, which is called the Howie Games, which is about which is him interviewing sports people. And he said part of the the, the reason for getting into the, to do the podcast that he did because he worked for so long in radio for Triple M and on TV and stuff. Sometimes the interviews, he did an interview with Lewis Hamilton, Formula One world champion. It was a 20-something-odd-minute interview that literally got cut to a three-and-a-half-minute spot before an ad break. Yeah. And that was what boot-started him to like do these long-form where you get the full story behind the headlines sort mm-hmm. of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I feel like with some of the bigger names in, in, when, we've, when we've interviewed, people like, you know, unless it's on like a, like a junket. I mean, the interview that I did with James Labrie, I know I'd made a conscious effort to try and ask him some different stuff. Mm. And that's where we crowdsourced questions for that one, none of which we got to ask. Um, or and just like asking, because the big like the big names who do a lot of interviews a lot of the time are pretty generally pretty sick and tired of answering the same damn questions all the time. So we try yeah. and make it a bit different, a bit more interesting. And especially given that at least Dave and I are you know pretty big big fans of stuff, we've kind of read and heard all that sort of stuff before anyway. Mm. So we try and do something a little bit different mm. with the bigger names. The interviews that we do with the band, the bands locally are more or less, at least for me anyway, trying to bring attention to the music they're doing. Yeah, they're yeah. doing something really cool, and we want to try and bring a little bit more coverage to it. Yeah, agreed. And I think the big thing with you sort of touched on it there, Hoggy, as well, um, is a bit of preparation there. So, I mean, coming from a journalism background, um, I'm, I'm, I'm re- I feel like to think I'm reasonably okay. Um, you hear so many asinine bullshit interviews, right? You know, so tell us about the new album. What does this mean? You know, how long did it take you to record? I mean, no one gives about this. two fucks about that shit, right? Just ask them the question everyone is really wanting to know or ask them really different stuff. Um, you know, and that's all just about preparation, reading some other interviews, 
Um, you know, there's some of the best interviews I've ever seen have been interviews when they've referenced other interviews and then just gone, now you answered this way, but, you know, it, let's delve deeper into that. And they start asking a whole bunch of other questions surrounding the answer that they gave that may have been like a three-sentence answer and getting to, to expand on that. Um, you know, it's it's just so much... It's, it's much more journalistic, I suppose. And that's probably the, the journalist in me coming out. Um, but yeah, it's, I don't know. That's, that's just me. Anyway. A uh, band called Seller Darling. She used to be in um, a band. I can't remember what the band's called. Um, God, I can't remember. A- Anna, Anna Murphy. Um, she used to be in a folk Melodeth album from a uh, Melodeth band from Switzerland, I think. Damn it, it's a famous man. I can't remember what it's called. But um, it, it's fascinating because I was asking her a couple of questions because you feel obligated to ask, like, you know, questions related, like sort of standard questions. You do feel a sense of obligation, like you're doing an interview, you should cover, like, some, you know, standard things. And she was giving me very rote answers. No, no, no problem with that. Like, I can understand why you would have very rehearsed answers. But then she sort of... I asked a different question and she sort of, it's a completely different feel for answer. It's, it's really fascinating like that. Um, and you're also totally right about radio, but like radio mm. is such a weird thing because it's so powerful because you can, you have a lot more sort of, I don't know, prestige in that sense. So you have a bit more ability to sort of reach out. Um, I, I certainly did when I was doing community radio and you also you get to actually play music and get to listen to it while you're doing your thing, and that's such a great feeling. But but like you said, it's just a, it's terrible. It's a terrible medium because you are so restricted by, um, especially in commercial radio, um, by like uh, commercial expectations, by ad breaks, by song breaks, by limits on segment times. It's yeah, it's it's really it's sort of terrible in that way. But diving a little bit deeper into interviews, like you mentioned, sort of that preparation. How do you actually go about preparing for interviews? What, what do you do to make sure that you um, can write appropriate questions, you can be ready for the moment? What do you do about that? I think for, for me, um, and we probably both run at it a little bit differently, um, the research side of things is the big thing for me. So it de- kind of depends on what we're interviewing about. So, I mean, if I'm interviewing, for example, um, say, uh, Roe from... I Built the Sky, and we're talking about his latest album. I'm going to make sure I've listened to the album. If I have to, I'll get an advanced copy from him. I'm going to make sure that I've got the ability to actually talk about what is done um, and what he's done and so on and so forth. Um, And also go back and have a listen to some of his earlier works, see how that compares. Other interviews that he's done as well, have a listen and have a read of those as well. Just to make sure, A, I'm not covering the same ground, but B, to make sure that I've got a rough idea of where he's going to go with the answer as well um, and see what else I can pull out from that. Now, there is a caveat to that in that the most recent interview I did with Jim Gray from Caligula's Horse, I actually hadn't heard the new album at the time. Um, And I think it's really important, any budding journalists out there who are listening to this, if you haven't heard the album, be honest about it and tell them you haven't heard the album and try and play on that fact because they're going to know if you haven't for starters. And secondly, if you sort of be honest about it, they'll be like, yeah, cool. And they generally open up a little bit more because they they know that you can't make any assumptions on things. Um, so those are the kinds of things I do to prepare. Um, as well as that, just being in the moment as well and making sure I'm listening. 
um, to everything that they're saying, writing down key particular things. I have a notepad and a pad, piece of paper, beside, notepad and a pen beside me whenever I'm doing interviews. And I take note of particular timestamps for particular things um, just to make sure that I'm getting everything I can out of the interview as well. And it also enables me to write in more questions if if there's something else there. You know, don't stick to the script. I, I remember <clears throat> the very first interview I ever did when I was at uni was actually interviewing um, Glenn Wheatley, um, if you know who that is. <laughs> um, and he... I remember writing all these questions. I had about 11 or 12 of them, and I thought they were cracker. I thought they were great. And I asked him the first question, and I watched him go down the list. Answered that, answered that, answered that, answered that. And then I had to fly by the seat of my pants for the remaining uh, 35 minutes or 40 minutes or whatever it was of the interview. Um, I'll never forget that. And I think it's really important to be able to be fluid and in the moment and be able to react to questions that they or things that they say and ask questions off the back of those. So not being really rigid in the things that you're asking is always really important for me. But it very much comes down to your interview style as well. Um, I know, Hoggy, you're more a you write the questions and, and sort of, but you ask really, really interesting and specific questions. Um, rather than sort of ask a general question and then sort of hone down in on the interesting parts. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I don't. Necessarily, I mean, I've never sort of formally trained in that sort of thing. I think first and foremost, when when I'm doing interviews, it's more or less of someone that I'm already a fan of. I mean, I think the interviews I've done on the show, let's see, we got did one with uh, the first one I did. I think was with Anubis. Second one was James Lebrie, then it was then Hamina, Hashashin, uh, who else have I done? Nick Barrett. These are all people that I'm big fans of and big fans of their work. So being a big fan of myself, I've already, I know the answers to all the kind of standard interview questions. I don't necessarily, like, so I sort of jump past that and dive right into the, the deep, the, sort of the, the deeper cuts or the stuff that I personally want to know about. So I think that's definitely part of it. Uh, my preparations for interviews, I mean, I'm not going to lie about it. I generally bounce these things off my wife. My wife and I are generally fans, but like, what, you know, what would you think? And she's come up with some great, I mean, let's be honest. The questions for Nick Barrett, I think half of those questions on that interview were her questions, like stuff that she wanted to know about because she's a much, much bigger fan of Pendragon than I am. So she had a lot of, in, she has a lot of input in the interview style and the interview styles and the questions. And she has a bit of a background in, um, music journalism as well from um, growing up in Bulgaria. She used to work for a magazine as well. So my interview style is more or less sort of influenced quite a lot by what Dave does, you know, stuff that I picked up from my wife and also as well stuff that you have done, Ben, like things that you like the way that you've sort of asked questions and interviewed people. I said, Oh, that's a really interesting question. I sort of save that one and try and work on it for my interviews that I do later on. I'm so humbled. (laughs) something i do genuinely think a lot about and like i sort of think like is there something i could be doing better is there something i could be um you know is there are there questions that i should ask all the time are there questions which i should keep sometimes are there questions i shouldn't ask at all i i I just think that about that a lot and it sort of comes down to like what are you trying to achieve when you interview someone it's something i I don't know if I've still got the right answer for. What, what do you guys think about that? What are you trying to achieve when you ask someone for an interview, when you ask a whole array of questions? 
depends on what the what the interview what the interview is ostensibly. I mean, some of the interviews we've done have literally been part of like a junket where you get twenty minutes on the phone with them and they're just and so you're trying to glean you know get them to talk about the new thing that they're doing and get them to you know maybe you know talk about some different kind of stuff. The interviews where we've just sort of talked to people. Out, like the interview that we did with James LeBrie, for example, that wasn't necessarily in service of anything. That was literally me on the phone with him while he was on tour. So, it, trying to the it it differs, I think, for what the interview is about. If it's them interview, if we're talking to someone because they've just released a new album or they've done something like that, or they're coming out here on tour, then we want to talk. We want to try and give them the opportunity to talk about, and give some insight into that new thing. If that isn't the case, then I think for me, what I'm trying to achieve is like bring a, some a, a big name artist, try and come do different, ask different questions, or you know, try and give them the opportunity to answer something that probably they haven't, maybe haven't done or haven't answered before. With someone like a newer upcoming artist, then try and give them the platform and the exposure to talk about their music and their vision. Mm. <clears throat> um, I think. For me, what am I trying to achieve? I'm trying to achieve the fine line between entertainment and discovering the truth behind a situation. Um, my favourite interviewer ever, and I think he's honestly one of the best interviewers that ever have been and ever will be, is Andrew Denton. Um, and he straddles that line perfectly. Um, very, very, very good. And he's someone that I very much aspire to be like. Um, you know, his use of comedy and... Uh, humor to break someone someone open and to get them to open up um, is just absolutely incredible incredible to um, to see I had a good friend of mine through uni who got the opportunity to interview her uh, sorry interview him um, for a university assignment and the thing I'll never forget seeing the video and the thing started up and it was just a black screen and because they hadn't had the cameras rolling yet but they had the audio rolling and you hear um, you know, is everything okay, this person's name? And my friend said, actually, to be honest with you, Andrew, I'm a little bit nervous. And Andrew goes, well, don't fuck it up, whatever you do, right? And they, all, everyone started laughing, right? Everyone in the whole thing. And it just changed the whole mood of the entire thing. Um, I think that's really important. And what I try and do is I try and, you know, use um, a little bit of humor and, and things like that and, and be knowledgeable enough that they know that I'm, I know what I'm talking about but humorous enough that they can sort of just open up to open up really and just give me information that maybe others can't get out, um, which at the end of the day is what I'm trying to do. I just want to help them tell their story. So It's interesting you mentioned Andrew Denton there, Dave, because there's, there's sort of almost like two styles of interview. You've got the people who are probably trying to be like, um, Michael Parkinson, yeah. where he very much, he would ask the question, very much sit back and let the guests sort of, do their thing. And then you've got the sort of Graham Norton, Jonathan Ross school of interview where they want to be the focus of the thing and they're the one trying to jump out right in front mm. of it. I think both you and I subscribe to the former camp, well, the latter, I think. Yes. <laughs> Here's something I just came up with. Is there any sort of things you do in interviews, which you know that you do, um, that you don't like or you wish you could do better or you wish you could improve on at this current moment? Ooh. I wish I was a little bit less scripted with my interviews, but that'll probably come with uh, with experience and doing more of them. Um, <clears throat> I think for me, it's taking a little, little more, a few more risks. Um, 
particularly when you're talking to people from, say, the US or something like that, and I want to make a Trump joke, um, because, you know, Trump is a joke, um, but <laughs> when you want to do that, you're never quite sure what they're going, what their reaction's going to be. Um, there was a pretty good example of that in the recent interview I did with Thematic, and I can't remember if it was actually in the show or if it was after the show or if it was in the post show or something, I, I can't remember. But I said something along the lines of, you know, they said, we're just waiting for the word from from Trump, basically, so we can get back out and start playing again. And I said, what word is that going to be? Is it going to be, you know, fantastic or, you know, unbelievable or something? And they just went, yeah, it's going to be tremendous, you know. And it was, it just broke the whole, the whole <laughs> interview. Everything was just much lighter after that. And I remember sitting there thinking, shit, I wish I could be a little bit more risk, uh, less risk adverse, I suppose with doing that sort of stuff um, and not worrying so much about it. Um, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that, is, that is hard. Like, I've interviewed um, uh, Juan Brujo. Uh, they released an album which is like, its lead song was like, it featured like a little skit at the start about killing Trump. And so, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of antipathy out there towards <laughs> Trump, especially in, I think, the metal music community. But, like, if you do the wrong thing, you can derail mm. that entire fucking interview. And it's it's done. It's gone. Oh, so no way to recover from that. Yeah, so quickly. Especially if or if you end or if either you end up with an interviewer who is either a like a supporter of Trump, fine, whatever, or someone who just does not want to talk about politics at all. Because there are plenty of those musicians out there who are just like, nope, I am just not. I'm not touching this with a like a fifty foot barge pole. <clears throat> I think we all know. I mean, absolutely. I, th- I think like your that. show is a really good indication of that. Like, you guys are very reticent to get into that because there is a, a lot of people who don't want to get into um, you know, politics. They're just very adverse to that. Or they, they don't want to get into politics when it comes to things like music. They're, you know, obviously there's a lot of politics in music, but it's not explicit. It's sort of themes, illusions, rather than talking specifically about the current moment. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is what I mean, our after the, show is about yeah. today. Um, <laughs> we literally just did the, yeah. Separating the art from the artist, so. Um. Yeah. The problem with the politics, though, I think, it, when it's directly related to what's happening in the music industry, and we, we have yelled long and hard on the show about the lockout laws in New South Wales and restrictions around festivals and stuff like that, because it's directly related and directly affects the way that the music is being presented. Talking necessarily about an artist's personal opinions about a political situation, you know, we try and stay away from mm. that. We because tr- a we're not that a we're not that up on the topic necessarily, and we don't. I well, at least for me anyway, I don't just really particularly want to be on record as being particularly for or against a particular musician's opinion. Mainly because I I I do worry sometimes if it's just going to end up getting. Like it's going to get blown up and it's going to end up on the front page of Blabbermouth or something, you know. Oh, Australian podcaster says this, that, and the other about whatever. Yeah, but you know just as well as suddenly, I do that I subscribe to the idea of don't read your press, weigh it. So if Blabbermouth wanted yeah, to yeah. do an expose on us, mate, go for your life. <laughs> all, pre- yeah, all press is good press sort of exactly. situation, yeah. Before we get off the topic of interviews, also what are your thoughts about like um, David, you've probably got quite a bit of experience in this and maybe some sort of thoughts, general principles. But Alex, this sort of applies to you as someone who's coming into the idea of doing interviews. Things that you think are like really good... Um, I'm struggling to word this. But like, like oh, this is a really um, good tip or trick or, or something for doing interviews. 
I think the biggest thing is to be researched. I know I've said that a couple of times, but you need to be researched on your topic because the I remember doing an interview with a reasonably well-known country rock star a few years ago. This is back when I was writing for Universal. And I can't tell you who it was for numerous reasons, but I won't tell you who it was. Um, and I completely fucked the interview because I had read the wrong thing on Wikipedia like five minutes before I walked into the interview, right? Oh, no, 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 not Wikipedia. Right? You stay the hell oh, away from but that. I was, this was a year into my journalism life, right? And I was just like, oh, yeah. fuck it. You know, you know when you get like your year in, you're like, yeah, I'm a bit cocky. I know what I'm doing. Anyway, I fucked it. I absolutely fucked it. So biggest thing is to be prepared. And don't, if you think you know it, you don't know it. You have to know you know it. That's the biggest thing for me is knowing you know what you're talking about and being comfortable with talking about whatever it is that they're going to throw at you. And if you don't know something, like if someone says to you, if you're a guitarist, for example, and you're interviewing a drummer, be straight up and say, you know, look, I'm a, I'm a guitarist, man. I don't understand, you know, how this works. Can you walk me through that? Right. The other thing as well is I think to be personable as well. So, you know, you can either go one of two ways. You can either make it an interview where they're talking to the masses or they're talking to you. Generally speaking, I find it works much better if they're just talking to you and they they tend to lower their um, their guard a little bit as well, which, which is nice. Um, also, one out there for the budding journalists, um, something that I say at the start of all the recordings that actually gets cut from all the recordings is... I acknowledge that they're, I tell them that it's obviously being recorded um, for use on our podcast later on and anything they say on it will be taken to be on the record because that stops you from having to go, okay, back on the record, off the record, on the record, off the record, on the record, right? But then you, I follow that up with saying, but um, look, I'm not in this for a gotcha, right? If you say something and it's not supposed to be there, just say, hey, can we cut that and I'll cut it. I don't, it's not really, it's not a big deal to me, but it covers your ass legally and it also allows you to... Um, be a little bit more uh, sort of lax with the whole on the record, off the record, on the record, off the record thing. So, I think that on the record, on the record thing, isn't that just like a hangover from like days when interviews were done with tape recorders and they would literally like tell the person to stop the tape recorder and, you know, do that, do it that sort of way. But now, because everything like, you know, basically you're recording as soon as you pick up the Skype call. Isn't that sort of, you know, because on the record, off the record thing. I saw a really great story about actually... um. It was a Neil Prasad, and he was saying um, he did an interview with um, oh, it's a jazz guy. I forget the name. And they did the thing, got through one tape, and he went to put he put the second tape in, and then he forgot to start recording. And no, 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 the jet, the musician knew that he hadn't started recording, and then proceeded to bag out. Bag, he bagged a record by another jazz artist. He rubbished some other band and poured scorn on his former record label, knowing full well that the tape wasn't running and none of it could be used. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. And yeah, Neil Brassard's like, wow, this stuff's gold. He's writing it all down, writing it all down. But of course, if it's written down in a notepad while the guy's talking, no one's going to believe you. Mm. You've got to have it on the tape. Mm, that's right. Mm. Um, but the interview, I mean, uh, the one thing I would build upon that as well, um, I've heard musicians say this about the music, and I think it applies to interviews as well. It's like, make the interview 
that you would want to, you would like to read and that is usually the one that people will will wait. like uh, the, the James LeBrun interview that I did I had many people come up to me and say that was a really interesting interview that was a really good and I think if you try and make the thing it's rather than trying to you know ask things that you think other people would like just ask stuff that you like that you want to know the answer to as long as it's not too sort of biting I guess mm mm and I, I actually one one thing I I think um, just adding to what you were saying, David, is that you know not everyone is actually aware of what the hell you're doing. So when you get connected to a call with a band by a PR person or something, they yeah. don't necessarily know whether you're doing a, a you know you're just doing background for a story, getting a couple of quotes, or whether the whole thing is being recorded and you're going to play the whole thing yeah. from start to finish without edits. And so to, to to be yeah, a bit clear, yeah, like absolutely. about like, hey, this is a podcast we're recording. We're having a conversation, which is being, you know, just uh, put up. Potentially, everything, um, you know, is being uh, uh, published word for word in terms of the audio format. That, that's also something. Just, just be really clear yeah. with whoever you're dealing with, even if it sounds a bit form. Yeah, absolutely, that's a really that's a really good that's a really good point. That's actually, actually pretty on there for life too. Just be really clear in what you're dealing with and you know you'll you'll have a much smoother time um but <laughs> i guess that's i guess that's true for when you're doing junkets when they're literally like interviews stacked up back to back for a whole day and you've got your 20 minutes it's like okay well i'm doing this for a podcast so you know everything you say here is going to be on the on the tape yeah, that's a good that's a good one actually i like that so let's finish up a couple of like uh, sort of pretty boring process questions i'm kind of fascinated by it because i'm a podcaster myself well, what is your setup for recording? How do you go about actually um, re- recording the, the show? Uh, well, my setup is very, very basic. It is literally a out-of-the-box Blue Yeti microphone into a – it's just on a microphone stand that I bought very cheaply from a music store, and it's got a pop filter in front of it. Uh, USB microphone, not a particularly high-end one, and it's just literally plugged straight into my laptop, mm. and I've got the bog-standard Windows voice recorder running the uh, – Running the voice recorder. Um, when we do the podcast itself, we talk over Skype. I have a MP3 Skype recorder running in the background that starts as soon as we start the call. So you get you get all of that, and then Dave does the edit to match it all up. Mm. So the Skype recorder, recorder call is there basically as a backup in case something breaks or uh, just to line the two ends of the recording up. Mm. Basically, that's what we use it for is just for the... For that, um, my end here, I've got a, um, oh God, what is this? This is a road. Oh, fuck. You've been using a road podcaster for I a was, while. Yeah. Are you still using the no, same one? No, I'm, You've changed I'm using it now. a road um, NT1A now, um, which is hooked up to my desk. Um, I've got a home studio, so um, that runs into a mixer, much akin to yourself. Um, it's a nice big. Mackie mixer that goes into my interface, interface into my computer. Um, I too use the Windows voice recorder just because it's fucking easy and it works and I've never had a problem with it. Um, and it saves me from running, you know, um, Ableton or, or uh, Audition or something in the background and, you know, potentially something going on with that. Um, and then, yeah, I just drop it all into Audition. I edit everything in Audition um, because it's actually a freaking fantastic um editing program for for that sort of stuff um yeah 
that's basically it. Uh, this is something I know that I've um, I've heard other podcasters say. The musicians out there who might be interested in starting your own podcast, um, try not to use Pro Tools to edit the thing because bouncing it down takes forever. Yep. Something that I'm familiar with is that if you've got a two-hour-long podcast, it will literally take two hours to bounce the thing down. Mm, mm. Where audition takes maybe, what, five, ten minutes to bounce depends down? Depends on the size. Um, yeah, depending on how big the thing depending is. Depending yeah. what I'm doing in the background. Sometimes 20 minutes, yeah. Mm. It's not a big deal. Speaking of editing, like, what was your approach to editing? Like When I was starting my other podcast, I discussed with my friend who I was doing it with, um, like, what, what would it be our editing philosophy in terms of like, what, what do we can't... Like how much, how how snappy do we want to be? How much of like little pauses, little ums do we want to cut? All that sort of stuff. What what is your approach to editing? I keep it as natural as I can, um, but I try and make a sound a bit more eloquent than I think we both are. Um, <laughs> generally speaking, what I do is I just line everything up in in um, in audition. I get it all lined up, put all the put it through all the effects and all the compression and everything that I put it through. Um, and then start from the start and just listen and edit out the things that I don't think need to be there. Um, and sometimes that can be a big swathe where we go off on a tangent for like 25 minutes because that totally never happens. Um, no, no, not at all. <laughs> um, sometimes that just hits the cutting, that stuff hits the cutting room floor and we wind up with an episode that general, general rule of thumb is if I've got about an hour and a half of material there, it boils down to about an hour and five um, hour-long podcast uh, maybe a little bit more depends on you know what we've got um, etc but generally you lose about for every hour and a half you lose about 20-25 minutes of, of stuff um, that being said I'm not particularly brutal with it when when I'm really brutal with it I can get it probably get that down to like 45 minutes if I want um, and that's sometimes the approach that I use with interviews um, sometimes if we put an interview in the middle of a show if it's a shorter interview um, which we've done a couple of times. I'll try and edit out um, as much of the crap as I can, um, you know, where they they might start answering a question and then they'll go off and do something for like 10 minutes and then they'll come back and finish answering the question. That 10 minutes goes and then I just sync them up. Um, Audition's a great tool as well because it'll auto cross pan and auto cross fade and things like that. It's it's fantastic. I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, but that's my general, my general philosophy is keep it as... Um, Keep it as natural as you can without losing the overall feel. Well, so I want to talk to you guys a bunch about different prog music. Um, and, this, and again, this is probably uh, going over some stuff we've talked about in the show. But when did you guys first start listening to progressive music? I came to progressive music very, very late. And I didn't start listening to prog music until I was at university, when I was like 19 or something. I mean... <clears throat> I used to. I, I wouldn't listen to music like a casual fan, just sort of the stuff that was on the radio or whatever. And went through a phase where I used to listen to a lot of rap as well when I was like fourteen or fifteen, when Eminem first came around, I guess. And then that changed when a friend of mine gave me two records. He gave me Metallica's Black album and Disturbs in Destruction. Ooh. I wouldn't necessarily say, yeah, 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 yeah. You stick your Sticky Vitalicky snobbery somewhere else for the time being. I don't necessarily think of those two albums as particularly good albums now, particularly like groundbreaking albums now, but those were, that was the starting point for me. And then I got really into thrash metal and into Metallica, Megadeth, Slayer, Anthrax, Testament, all that through there. And then I think from there, that's when I stumbled across Dream Theater. It was like going into the heavier stuff and then listening to more technically different. And then I stumbled, then hit Dream Theater. 
and then that really opened the door for me and then I started going back into all the old prog rock stuff yes Genesis Emerson Lake and Palmer Pink Floyd Gentle Giant King Crimson uh, and then I st- and then from there I branched out in in the sort of surrounding Dream Theater universe. Got listening to Transatlantic, which opened the door into Spock's Beard and the Flower Kings, and then what eventually landed on the big one, which was Marillion. And then it sort of and it sort of mushroomed out from there. Hmm. Um, but it's all been mostly. It started off as my own self discovery, and then as time got on, I had a few friends at university who were into different progressive music, and they would say, "Oh, you should check out." Porcupine Tree, or you should listen to Lacuna Coil, or you should listen to, you know, that the different sort of stuff, and then, yeah, it sort of mushroomed out from there. So, but yeah, I've come a long way in just over ten years of um, listening to prog music. Mm. <clears throat> um, it was a little bit different for me. Um, I got I the reason for my Metallica snobbery is because I never really got into them. Um, I was I started playing guitar when I was like six. And by the time I was 13, I started to discover Metallica as you do because you're 13. You think the Metallica is amazing. Um, and I remember I'd been listening to them for like, I don't know, like two months or something like that. And a good friend of mine um, who's now, you probably know Stephen Taranto. Um, he said to me, oh, the Metallica is shit. You should be listening to Dream Theater. And I, me being me, I was like, please, you know, two fingers up, get stuck. Anyway, a couple of oh, a couple of months later, he brought me probably not even that a month later or something. He gave me a copy of Train of Thought, um, which he'd just bought. It had just come out, and he was like, "I want you to listen to this." Um, and that was it. That was the moment. Um, and looking back, I mean, my dad grew me up on you know Creedence Clearwater Revival and the Beatles, the Eagles, um, you know Steely Dan, Pink Floyd, etc but never really understood what that music was about or what it was like. Um, and then once I got into Dream Theater, um, from there I started getting into some much heavier stuff, um, but much more proggy kind of things. And, you know, down the rabbit hole I went, down to periphery and, um, uh, you know, Jesus, I don't know. Dream Theater were really the big one, but, you know, Tool, Porcupine Tree, um, you know, you mentioned some some of the other ones, um, some of the other big big prog guys there. Um, the the Metallica kind of sides of thrashy kind of stuff never really interest me. Um, after that, I got much more interested in the melodic side of things and and you know vocals that I can understand um, and you know not guitar not wild guitar solos. So um, that's that's kind of how I got into it, um, and the tastes have really evolved um from there um so yeah that's just kind of how how i got into it anyway mm. now on the show I, I don't think this has been quite articulated but i kind of get the impression that there's sort of a like you guys have slightly different like prime interests mm-hmm. in like prog music mm. I'm wondering if you could sort of delineate that for us mm. uh yeah well, there's definitely <laughs> two kind there's definitely two worlds in the prog world and if you go to a prog festival you see this clear as day you've got the people that you've got the classic prog the guys that were influenced by mostly genesis and then you've got the gent guys who are mostly influenced by i don't know 
But yeah, the, the two styles of, of prog music, I tend to lean more towards the first one. Dave, you probably tend to lean more towards the second one. However, this podcast has definitely got us more interested in the other style, in the other, other person's style, I think. And not only just in that, but I mean, we were talking today about how before we started this podcast, Hoggy was very much, you know, boo electronic music. But now he's not boo electronic music. Now he's like, maybe I should probably look into it a little more. Um, which is really interesting uh, for me. And for me, I'm not a really big fan in of a lot of the stuff that, that Hoggy would listen to, the real experimental hard stuff, um, you know. But I'm getting more interested in it from a composition point of view. So it's it's been good so far as a musical journey is concerned. When you like go like, this is my stuff, this is like, wow, this, this is really talking to me specifically – what, what what aspects of, of like what is it in the music that you enjoy? What are you looking for? Um, I think I think for me it's um, I don't I I can't explain to you exactly what it is, but there's just some stuff sometimes when you listen to it and your ears prick up, right? And you go, oh, hello. Like that, that, that happened to me with the thematic album this year, Skyrunner. Um, the first, tra- the opening track was a bit, bit weird for the whole album, to be really honest with you. But then the second track started, and I was like, "Ooh, okay, this is interesting." And the second the vocals came in, I went, "Okay, this is awesome!" Like, because it was just so well done. Um, and I think that's the thing. I think it's something that really grabs my attention. The amount of stuff that is out there nowadays that kind of just sounds like a cookie cutter of the stuff that was 10 years ago, or, you know, it's it's something that has already been done. I don't really like that stuff. Sure, it can be extremely well done and I can appreciate it for that, but it's not really anything that's, you know, groundbreaking. It's not going to hit anything out of the park um, unless it does. But there is a certain something in it for me. One thing I'm not a huge fan of is Cookie Monster vocals. I've never been a big fan of those, um, unless it's sort of like interjected at little points to emphasize. But, you know, the bands that just sort of sound like some guy deep-throating a microphone, I've never been a massive fan of that sort of stuff. But I know there are people out there who are, so um, I don't know. Yeah, I married one of them. <laughs> <laughs> hashtag, hashtag make Opeth growl again. What I'm looking I mean... Dave's point there about, you know, music that sort of sounds like a cookie cutter of other kind of bands, you know, he's absolutely right. And that music doesn't necessarily get me that interested. If, they, if they're putting a new spin on something or combining two influences from different places, like, you know, Dave mentioned that um, thematic album, Skyrunner, that de- combined, combined the prog metal with a definite sort of hardcore punk kind of influence, which is really, really interesting. And I, that's the sort of stuff that I tend to look for, is the combination of a couple of different things. And also as well, I'm still, even as a, a total non-musician, I'm still very, very interested by something that's really technically very interesting, like technically quite complicated. There's part of that element for me that's just like, you know, wow, that's really, like I can see that's a really difficult thing to play. Mm. And so that's interesting to me, which is why I tend to, Outside of prog, necessarily, I tend to be more interested in in in, in jazz and the kind of jazz related styles because there's a there's, a, there's quite a big crossover between the two, the sort of prog and jazz fusion. There's quite a lot of crossover there, so mm, absolutely. Now, something that I think really comes through in your 
discussions about, you know, particularly your deep discussions about um, albums, is your interest in lyrics. And that, that, that's something that you go back to again and again and again. Um, like how important is that they, I know, particular phrases which resonate with you. Talk a little bit about why that is, um, you know, of such interest to you. I feel like it's because lyrics can make or break an album. Um, you know, as much as I love Dream Theater and I love what they do musically and, you know, a lot of the stuff that they do is unbelievable, right? Take, for example, a song like The, the Count of Tuscany. Really interesting title. Great song. Absolutely brilliant. One of my favorite Dream Theater songs. This, the lyrics, though, are basically about a miscommunication understanding between a guy who's visiting a guy in Tuscany. It, it ain't exactly heavy on the grey matter, right? Um, really, it's not It's not going to win any you know, Pulitzer Prizes for its writing um, there. But when you get guys like, for example, Jim from Caligula's Horse, and if you've never read any of the Caligula's Horse stuff, just read the lyrics. It reads like unbelievably fucking fantastic poetry, right? I think there's a massive difference. And for me, I always go back to like the Billy Joel lyrics, right? From Piano Man. Um, you know, he could have said in that song, um, you know, you know, and I, I, I knew the song when I was younger, but he didn't, he, he said, um, you know, sad and it's sweet. And I knew it complete when I wore a younger man's clothes. And I think that's just such a really profound way to say it without saying it. It's that whole idea of show don't tell. Right. And I think it can add to a song so well, um, and particularly the voice and how it's sung as well can really really add to it um and myself i'm not a great lyricist so i admire people that can put words together really 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 well um you know i, I i'm a reasonable muso but lyrics are not my thing um so for me it's just really poignant i think and particularly ones that do it very well instead of just you know blatantly smacking you over the head with a hammer and saying see what i'm saying see what i'm saying um so you know yeah Hoggy, what what about do you agree with that or Yeah, for me with <clears throat> with lyrics, I mean if you look back at some of the the big big records of previous eras, you know, stuff like uh, I don't know, A Day in the Life by the Beatles <laughs> or some things by you know, but you know, any Roger Waters lyrics from Pink Floyd. I mean, you're really talking about it gives you a window into the era that it was written in. You know when he's thinking, you know, when he's talking about you know how many holes can how many holes would it take to fill the Albert Hall sort of hmm. thing. That was the way the the, the sort of the undercurrent of the so, the political stuff is happening there, and you know things the you know the stuff they were talking about in Dark Side of the Moon, and particularly the wall. I mean that gives a mm-hmm. real sort of window into what it's like to grow up in a post World War Two era where your father you never met your father, mm-hmm. and in that and. The, the the albums that I go to now, you know, Marillion's Fear is really a snapshot of what was the impending shitstorm that turned up before Brexit, Trump, rise of the far right, all that sort of. It provides a very so those those sorts of lyrics for me are very important because they they provide a great snapshot either into what's happening in the world or what could be happening in a particular person's life. I mean, we. Pretty sure the episode you're referring to here is the episode that we did about Lepros's pitfalls, where we went 
way in on all the lyrics mm. there because that was a, a, a very personal part in Einar's mm. life. And there's things you can learn from that going through problems with depression and with mental illness and things like mm. that. So the lyrics are very important because they can tell you something about the world that you live in, the world that someone else was living in at the time, or even what's going on inside someone else's head and the, the sort of the things that you can sort of glean from that and, and bring that into your own life. You, you mentioned going to World War II, never knowing your father and all that sort of stuff. great example of that for me is Penny Lane by the Beatles. Um, mm. You know, it opens in Penny Lane, there's a barber showing photographs of every head he's had the pleasure to have known and all the people that come and go stop and say hello, right? And it's it's such a joyous sort of thing. But as the song goes on, He's talking about, you know, on the corner is a banker with a motor car and little children laugh at him behind his back. And the banker was, uh, sorry, the banker never wears a Mac from pouring rain, very strange. And then it goes on to talk about, you know, the barber's shaving another customer and, you know, um, there's a fireman with an hourglass and his pocket is the portrait of a queen. I really appreciate the stuff that's really well done, well put together, but also paints such a great portrait of what life is like for that split second, for that that moment in time. Um, for me, the lyrics of songs are like photographs of that particular instant in that person's life. Outside of sort of rock, metal, progressive rock, progressive metal, what kind of other music uh, do you listen to? Well, as I mentioned, it's sort of I do quite listen to I do listen to jazz quite a bit, um, classical music as well. Uh, I do tend to listen to that, and I have very slowly been getting into electronic music and also film soundtracks as well. I mean, some of the some of the stuff in film soundtracks as well could be quite progressive in a way. Mm, mm. So those are the four broad categories that of stuff that i listen to um i'm a little more specific um i actually listen to a lot of bluegrass um a lot of uh sort of trance electronica kind of stuff as well um soundtracks are a big one for me as well um i love listening to to a lot of that sort of stuff and um i I actually try and listen keep up to date with some of the stuff that's on the radio so far as pop and things like that's concerned just to hear sort of what's coming out so I can be slightly educated on bagging it if I have to be. Um, but <laughs> I was going to say, it's like that whole rant that you had about Billie Eilish in the show. Oh, mate. <laughs> it was like... <laughs> um, <laughs> you see, that, that that there is in the key difference between Dave and I is that I haven't listened to the radio in pff, years, probably. Mm. Like, I don't listen to pop radio at all. I haven't done for years. Mm. Um, it's just not something that I've... Ten- it's just... The music that, I mean, the only time I ever used to listen to the radio was generally in the Uber driver's car on the way to and from the airport because mm-hmm. it's usually trained, ch- tuned to 92.9 or Nova 937 in this in this state. And so, yeah, and yeah, I, it, they all just sound the bloody yeah. same to me. Yeah, it does. But it, do, it, it doesn't, it, the guys sound, it's got the R&B sound and they all sound the same. The ladies all sound the same. They all either sound like Lana Del Rey or they all either sound, or they sound like Beyonce mm-hmm. and that's, pretty much it as far as i can tell see i quite like i I give kudos where kudos is due right so for example one of my favorite pop songs of the last little while is galway girl by ed sheeran right because it's just a great song it's genuinely a really 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 good song and the film clip's fantastic it's just very well put together and i quite like him because he writes his own shit right um, I'm a big fan of Taylor Swift. What? Well, was a big fan of Taylor Swift before she went weird. Um, 
but you know I, I quite like a lot of that that sort of stuff which probably surprises a lot of people to hear you know he's this guy who's touting metalhead stuff and then I turn around and go yeah so I'm a Swifty so it's I think for me it's just good music to answer your question what other sort of stuff do I listen to I listen to what I deem to be good music um, and that is either music that makes me think or it's music that I go wow that's really good um, if it's some asinine bullshit and some you know, prissy white girl sitting there singing about how the fact that her bow left her, not fucking interested. Like, cry me a river, sweetheart. Everyone has that issue. Dust yourself off, you know, put your country boots away and <laughs> stop pretending that you're heartbroken because you're sitting on your million-dollar bloody yacht. Um, yes. Who are we talking about there, Dave? Yeah, not, <laughs> not talking about anyone in particular. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if this is going to be a fruitful question at all, um, but like, do you have any controversial opinions on prog and music generally? I don't mean like, oh, people are going to turn against you, but like pe- areas where you may <laughs> believe contrary to sort of like you know, <laughs> mainstream, I don't know, prog or music generally opinion. Uh, Ooh. <laughs> well, I, I've got I've got one that I've danced. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say I've got one that I've danced around on the show a couple of times. Um, the thing that I have with the prog band, yes, okay, they made some great albums. I think the last great album that they made was probably twenty years ago, which was the latter. Magnification was all right as well, but after that, everything else they've done since then has been an absolute dirge, and. The problem that they have, that this band has, and they probably recognise it as well themselves, is the fans do not give a stuff about the new music. They just want to hear the old hits toured round, round and round. And at a certain point, you've got to wonder whether it's a band or whether it's a cover band. And given that there's only like one or two members of the band who've been there for a while and the rest are, you know, just sort of drafted in, like, you've got to wonder at what, you know, at what point do they just sort of say, you know what, we're done here and we're just going to retire? To me, that point probably should have been maybe fifth, probably should have been 15 years ago. <clears throat> so there's my controversial opinion on prog and prog bands. Um, I've probably said all, right, all I can about my attitudes towards pop music and the fact that they all just sort of fall into one of three broad categories and that's just about it. Um, um, I think my controversial opinion on prog is I'm not sure if it's super controversial or not, to be honest with you, but I frankly think that fans just need to shut the fuck up and get on with it. Um, You know, I get that you think that Portnoy was a better drummer than Mangini. Like, I understand that. Oh, my God. But seriously, it's <laughs> happened. Get the fuck over it and get on with it. I, I just... The amount of people... Or people that are highly judgmental at concerts... And they sit there and they do the whole dick swinging thing, you know, about, oh, yeah, I've been listening to them since this album or since this album. And it seems to only happen in prog concerts, in prog spheres, you know. Oh, yeah, I've been Particularly listening. with bands that have been around a really long yeah. time as well. Just like <sighs> old fans lauding it over the new ones because they remember them when they saw them back in the 80s or the yeah. early 90s or it whatever. And it's like nobody cares. It's like nobody cares. We're all here as fans. Why are you still bringing yeah, this up? Yeah, and they, they turn around and, you know, I remember having a conversation with someone. I was like, yeah, I started listening to Dream Theater, Tra- Train of Thought. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, I started listening to them at the Awake era. And I was like, great, I don't care. 
Like fuck off. Good, good for you. You know. <laughs> it, it, I, would you like it? Would you like? Would you like? It? <laughs> <laughs> um, just one. You only get one. Um, <laughs> but it's just. Oh man, that really annoys me. Um, yeah, I'm not too sure if there's anything really controversial that I haven't really said about my hate for the pop music industry as an industry. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna go with that one. I think that segues pretty perfectly into the next one I want to talk about. Dream Theater and Marillion are kind of like the patron saints of the podcast. They are an incredible focus for you guys. I think they come up without fail almost every episode. Um, many episodes are structured specifically around them or their albums or their tours. Why are they such an obsession for you guys? I reckon this one's actually a pretty easy question to answer because they're our two biggest... Um, two biggest influences i suppose um for me it was dream theater that i've absolutely loved since hearing that first album way back when and um you know i've been fortunate enough to meet them and interview most of them and you know they're they're really really good guys and really good blokes and so on and so forth and i think it's pretty well the same for for hoggy um in that well do can we say the thing about you and your missus I think I've actually talked about this on the show before. So yeah, I mean, the thing there's two there's two parts with Marillion. Number one, I think every Marillion fan around the world feels like that they're the world's best kept secret. In that they're not particularly in the main. Well, they're not necessarily in the mainstream in the way that some other big bands who've been around for a long time. Sure, they were in the mainstream back in the '80s, but then Fish left the band and they kind of fell into into obscurity. <clears throat> there's kind of two sort of fields of the of um, Marillion now. They're sort of almost sort of seen as like a classic rock band in a sort of way. And then the other side of it is you've got the people that read The Guardian. They're like, oh, yes, they're that band with that business model. They're on the internet because they're the ones who basically started the whole concept of crowdfunding and Kickstarter campaigns mm-hmm. to finance records that now everybody does. So there's definitely part of that. The third part, which is the part that Dave alluded to, is that if it wasn't for Marillion specifically, I probably would not be married right now. Um, I met my wife through the Marillion fan community. Um, we're married now, and it's a, basically a canon to the backstory, so we may, I might as well discuss it in full. <clears throat> uh, it was after the 2015 Port Ceylon convention, the fan convention. Uh, we, did, we were both at that convention. We did not meet at that convention. I came back to Australia, and she posted a, a, a group on the internet. I'm not going to say the name. Don't be creepy. Where she was talking about a fan that had missed an entire convention because of a, a, a strike. Uh, the French air traffic controllers <laughs> went on strike. Bless the French. They're always good for a strike. Um, and so she she heard about this guy who'd missed a convention because he's not able to fly from where he was in Spain up to the gig. So he she wanted to sort of get stuff from everybody around the world to get... Into the, to get to this guy, the band got involved. They sent stuff. Um, Steve Rothery had his has got his um, his own solo band, and he said uh, he said you know if you come to any show, we'll put you on the guest list, backstage passes, whatever you want, no problems at all. Uh, and then some really asshole trolls got in the middle of it and started complaining. There was another fan who was dying of cancer, and why aren't we talking about him? And it just got really fucking ugly. And um, I got in the middle of it and, you know, um, my wife was very, was pretty much ready to shut the group down and kind of send everybody their stuff back. And I got in touch with her and said, no, don't do that. Fuck the trolls. Fuck the haters. You're doing a really good, you're doing something really good here. Keep on with it. And that's how we got started to talking. And um, yeah, that was 2015. 
and we got married six months ago. So, yeah, that's kind of the. That's why it's such an upset. And my story of how I met my wife is not the only one. There are many, many other fans who have met their husbands, wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, etc. through the band. It was quite a sort of community network of long-distance international relationships being born out of fans of this band. Mm. Uh, that's really beautiful. <clears throat> um, so speaking of fans, you run uh, the Australian New Zealand Dream Theatre Fan Club. Um Talk a little bit about what that entails. What, why have a fan club and what do you guys do to run it? What do we do to run it? Not much. Um, <laughs> we just try and keep the fans up to date with what's going <laughs> on um, with any Dream Theater related news. Um, we're pretty fortunate in that we sort of have a little bit of a direct line and to, you know, to a news and, and things like that. And being that we're on the arse end of the world here in Australia, it's pretty exciting when, you know, a concert or a tour gets announced and booked for Australia. Um, so we just keep people up to date. Um, there's no membership fee or anything like that. It's something that we just do out of love for it. Um, I started the group in 2011 when I was in uni uh, with my mate uh, Simo. And uh, we've been doing it sort of ever since. Um, and then, yeah, Hoggy came on board in 2014, as we mentioned, or 2014, 2015. Um, and yeah, that's basically really it. I mean, there's not really a lot to it. Um, one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is that when you send us an email or a message on there, we do try and get back to you as quickly as we can. And we try and help people out as best we can with their issues as well. Um, so, you know, there is always stuff in the works and sometimes it might take a couple of months, but that's just the way the wheels turn and the cogs go. Um, but we do try and help people out as, as best we can, um, through that. Um, yeah, that's, it's really about it. There's not really much else to it. I don't think. I was going to say it definitely ramps up around the time that a tour gets yeah. announced and around the time that the tour is happening, where we're usually trying to organize fan meetups. If we're all attending a gig in Sydney, we're usually trying to organize a fan meetup. Um, people will also get in touch with us to try, oh, I got a ticket, I can't make it to the gig, can you try and like yeah. put it, advertise it yeah. and see if someone will buy it off me? That sort of thing happens semi-regularly around tours. Um, we also get messages from fans who've bought tickets on Viagogo as well and wondering what to do with them, which is, oh my God, those those emails, mm, those messages yeah. and those emails just break my heart. It's like, yeah. I mean, what when, when the last, when, not the last tour was announced because that one hasn't happened yet, but the previous one, I made a very specific point when I put the post up to link directly to the Dream Theater website. Here's where you can buy tickets. Go here, use this link. And people obviously either weren't, didn't use that, or and they went. And of course, if you type in like Dream Theater Tour into the yeah. top, the, the first search result you're going to get is via GoGo, which, and they are the scummiest motherfuckers in the universe when it comes to like concert tickets and gouging fans and just being assholes in general. And there was an email, there was a message that went around that said something along the lines of, oh, if you've bought tickets from Viagogo, the promoter's not going to honor them because, you know, he's been stitched up and you're not. And so we got these messages from people who were like, oh, what do I do with my tickets? You know, what should have I done? And like, what can we do? What what can we do personally in that situation? Not a lot. Like, you're just going to have to roll the dice and see if your ticket mm. is going to be honored at the door. We never heard back from those people who so I guess they were in the end, but <clears throat> that's you know it just it the thing that all, that never ceases to amaze me even though it's totally logical and stuff is like 
how people sort of approach the live concert thing and that we see it and we went so closely connected to it and mm-hmm. other people just aren't. Um, getting a bit back, back to music sort of more generally, like how do you find music? How do you listen to music? How does that sort of, um, I don't know, do you have a process? Is it more random? How does it work for you? Spotify is Spotify and YouTube are godly tools. That's pretty much it. Um, that and the the, the prog release yeah. blogspot, which I is mean, amazing. For, for as much as we jump onto, where some guy like does all the the prog mm. releases, and that's the playlist that I've been curating um, with all the prog releases from this year. Um, but generally speaking, yeah, just stumbling through YouTube, stumbling through spotify things like that that's generally how i find stuff and when some when i'm hear something it makes my ears prick up i go "Ooh, what's this save okay cool i'll listen to that later yeah yeah those two in combination also as well with stuff that bob link the 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 forums that i belong to on facebook in every like sometimes new music will bubble up through that someone will say oh um you know this is this is a band that's in my local area they've just put a record out what do people think of it um and I generally sort of will listen to those or save them to a place and then go back and listen to them. Um, that's where most of the album review recommendations that I give to Dave, most of that comes from there. Uh, comes from, you know, stuff that bubbles up on forums. So I've got here, like, discussing the scene in Australia, and I feel like you, in terms of, like, the mechanics, you've discussed that a lot. Um, so what, what I kind of want to get to here is, like, is there a distinctness in Australian prog music for you guys? Is there something that we offer that is special? How, how do you feel about the scene in Australia musically? Oh, the, the, the unique thing about Australian music is getting a band to come pile, you know, $50,000 worth of gear into a car that's worth five grand to go to a gig to play for four drink tickets and three fans. Um, that's probably the, the thing about the local scene in Australia, um, which I know sounds like I'm just whinging about, it, at least here in, in Sydney. The, the local scene in Sydney is basically shot. Um, but there is a sort of eternal hope to it as well and an eternal... Yeah, hopefulness is probably the right way to put it um, to the scene. Um, and what's really interesting about the prog scene is that everyone knows everyone. So that's good in it's good and bad right so it's fantastic if you're a band you're coming up the ranks and you're good to work with you fan you're you're just good people you're at every gig um you're there talking to people you make friends you make contacts etc etc it's absolutely awesome for that it's really bad if you're a dickhead um and you say piss off three or four bands and fire a whole heap of your bandmates or something like that um you know it's word spreads real quickly um, in the Sydney scene and in the Australian prog music scene. Um, and I mean really quickly, really, really quickly. Hmm. I mean, for me, as someone who is not a musician, how I see the scene in Australia purely as a fan in, is that there's a bunch of bands that are out there, because they're here in Australia, and especially, this is especially true in Perth because we're way out in the middle of nowhere and literally, like, the, the, the next closest biggest town to us is, like, Jakarta in Indonesia. So, for like, here the bands, they're not interested in... Well, they know. It's not that they're not interested in. They know they're never going to become big and popular. So they're just like, stuff it. We're going to play the music that we want to play. Never mind what's going to go on radio... 
We're never going to sell a bunch of records, so who cares? We're just going to play the music that we like. Which is where the, and this is where I think the interesting, and the same is probably true in Sydney as well, because the Sydney music scene has been hampered and hobbled and smashed into the ground by successive Liberal Party governments over a decade now. I think that there's this sort of idea that, well, bugger it, we're just going to play the music that we like and hope that that comes forth into the and finding people that really really enjoy it. yeah the, they're not going to sell thousands of records or sell out big stadiums you know i think that era has kind of passed through but the bands that are coming up through now they're just playing the music that they like and it's, it's interesting yeah, original in sounding scene, music there's a lot of people with a lot of things to say so you know watch this space because there's gonna i guarantee you over the next little while there's gonna be a lot of political stuff coming out um, I know for a fact that I'm working on a project at the moment that's going to be very political and talking about a whole bunch of very key things that are going on in the world right now. So, you know, I, I can speak to what I'm doing and I'm doing it, you know, um, and there's a lot of people around who, who are also doing that. Not necessarily in just the prog scene as well, mm-hmm. but I imagine the same sort of yep. thing is happening if you were into yep. rap or into country music or stuff like that. There's lots of, you know, people who are, pissed off and frankly fed up with the way things have been run in this country and some of that stuff is going to trickle out into the, and you're never going to see that sort of stuff in the big popular scene big pop i don't even know what the big popular acts are in this country because they figure they'll just leave if they get any sort of notoriety or any sort of influence or anything they just leave and go end up in america or end up in europe so you're not going to see that sort of stuff in the popular mainstream it's definitely it's going to come out through the underground yeah. and in in the in the very local scenes one thing that kind of yeah. you, you, your your guys' experience, your guys' relation to music, is um, Alex. You go first, David. I'm not, I'm not quite as clear about how much you have sort of gone overseas, trekking around to see bands. But Alex, you've talked about this quite a bit. Um, talk talk a little bit about what drives you to like go overseas and see bands because that's a lot of money a lot of effort and it's not something which you know i would personally do it's not something i relate to i'm wondering if you can sort of elaborate on on that kind of experience and and why you go through so much effort to sort of experience that the honest and truthful answer to this is is i did all of those trips solely so i could (laughs) see my now wife we that would that was basically like the soul the end game of that was to go to see and we would travel and do those sorts of things together. And we're both very very much. I mean, me more so, well, my wife more so than me, but she has seen a lot of live concerts. I think she's part. I think past something like six or seven hundred concerts now Jesus. in her lifetime. She's roughly the same age as I am. I've gone yeah. Something yeah, well, the joys of growing up in Europe, of course, is that you're a fifty euro flight away from the Netherlands, and you can go and see a whole bunch of bands over there. Um, I've seen something like two hundred and fifty or three hundred, and I don't know how many concerts. More than three hundred and fifty, I think, at this point. Um, so the going overseas part is definitely to see that and to experience those things with her. Um, that's the that's the short version. Um, are we going to continue to do that now that we're both here together in this country? Yes, because we get to see so many more bands. I mean, there are so many bands that we've seen overseas that would never, ever, in a thousand years, ever come to this country. Marillion are never going to come here. King Crimson are probably never going to come here. Riverside are probably never going to come here. So th- th- there's definitely this urge to go and 
we listen at home on the re- to the records and we want to go and see those bands. Now, the other thing I wanted to add on top of that, and this is something that I addressed on the last show that we spoke about my last summer travels overseas, is that, yes, I'm very fortunate that I was able to do those trips and that I had the money to do it, but it doesn't make me or anybody else who no. does those sorts of things a bigger or better fan than you. It it really does. I mean, I saw I and I and I had this as well when I posted something from the front row at a Dream Theater show in Sofia, where someone was like, "Wow, man, you're like the biggest Dream Theater warrior," and that made me feel really uncomfortable. It's like, no, I don't want to sit here and like rub it in everybody's noses that I've seen yeah. these bands in these different places and that I've seen really in eleven time, eleven or twelve times or something. Because the problem is when when you have that sort of metric. And when you go to as many gigs as I have, you'll quickly run into people who have seen the bands a lot more times than you are. I know people during the last Marillion fan convention cycle, I know one particular couple, they went to every single Marillion fan convention that they did. There was, what was it? The, the Netherlands, the UK, Poland, Portugal, Montreal, and Chile. Six of them. They went to all six of them. And I'm like, man, I wish I, I could do that. The, the other thing as well is um, we, we ham it up a bit on the show. Um, in that, you know, I'll give Hoggy a bit of shtick for going over there and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, but it's honestly just jokes. Like I, um, am I a little envious of, of Hoggy being able to do that? Yes. Yes, I am. I'll put my hand on my heart and say that. Um, however, I've had other opportunities that Hoggy would probably kill to have as well. Um, so, you know, you, you sort of count your, count your blessings, I suppose to say um with a lot of that sort of stuff and for hoggy and myself both um you know we both just enjoy music it's something that we do um and we've fortunate we're fortunate in that we've got the ability the financial ability to go and do a lot of these sorts of things um hoggy more so than me um but you know it's it's very much very much just a part of something that we do now you know as we speak we are slowly coming out of lockdown I'm not exactly sure when uh, live gigs will become a possibility. I don't think I've seen what what phase that is and when that's sort of ostensibly scheduled for. But I'm wondering if you guys have any thoughts about what live music is going to look like sort of after restrictions have sort of more or less lifted. Where, where do you think this is going? Is it just going to bounce back? Are there going to be problems? What are your guys' thoughts about that? I think it depends where you are. So if you're in Melbourne, for example, they've got yeah, such 100%. a massive live music community down there. They'll actually get help. Um, they'll be able to, you know, the government will actually step in and all that sort of stuff. If you're in New South Wales, you are fucked. Um, because if they have demonstrably shown over the past many years that they're just not interested in the arts, not interested in live music. Um, in Sydney, we've got five live music venues left. Like, that's it. I'm, I'm talking five small music venues, not the big ones. Like we've got five really small, really small ones left. Um, of anyone who would be doing larger shows and things like that, like, you know, most of them, are, and most of the live music venues, by the way, are owned by one booking agent. Um, so you've inevitably got to deal with them. Um, you know, it's just... It really depends where you are in Australia and how much the people actually value that stuff. I mean, the fact that they have let the football go back in New South Wales, um, but live music is still getting kicked in the teeth, is, I think, quite an obvious 
example of how it's going to happen. What I honestly think is going to happen, I think we're going to see a lot more Gorilla gigs showing up. I think we're going to see a lot more gigs for people without insurance, people taking risks to put shows on and so on and so forth just simply because um, just simply because they, um, they're sick of not having anywhere to play, not having anything to do. Um, I mean, the metal scene, particularly if you look at um, you know, that, that whole hardcore scene, we do hardcore music extremely well in Sydney and in Australia. I mean, Parkway Drive, arguably one of the biggest, I'll put it as Screamo, in inverted quotes, Screamo kind of bands in the world uh, from the Central Coast. Um, Polaris, uh, the drummer lives two streets away from me. I've known the boys for years and years and years. Um, and they're massive. I mean, you know, European and US too are massive. Um, you know, what's going to happen to those guys? Well, what used to happen was that they used to put on community hall shows and they used to play on the floor with like 50 people doing those stupid windmill arm things around them. Um, and they used to just do that that's what they used to do every weekend two shows a weekend you know two shows a week or a show a week um and there's nowhere for them to do that anymore because we've become so litigious as a society at least particularly in new south wales um so what do i hope will happen i hope it will bounce back i hope that the second all the restrictions are lifted we're going to see some festivals and we're going to see a whole bunch of people come out um we've actually got to put a show on because we promised that the boys in anubis would get their show um, and that still will happen. We will, we will be doing that at some point. Um, but at the moment, it's all it's very much all up in the air. And there's a lot of venues that have gone under as well. So what it will look like, man, if I had a crystal ball, <laughs> um, I couldn't tell you. Over here in Western Australia, it's a little bit different because we're a little bit further along in the rest- restrictions. Um, I think that just this weekend they've sort of lifted up to phase three restrictions, which means the pubs and the clubs and that sort of thing are allowed to open now. <clears throat> and so it, what I think will probably happen in this city is that there will be a bit of a resurgence in live music. There will be attendances of some gigs and some probably some of the bigger names will might be coming through. But ultimately, long term, I don't think a thing is going to change. I think it's going to be the same people going to the same concerts and everything will just sort of go back to normal and everyone, the people who are interested in the art scene will continue to come out to the art scene and the people that aren't just won't. It will be a little bit of a like a, it was like a bit of a peak where people will be interested for a while and they'll think everything's great and then they'll just stop caring again. That's ultimately what I think will happen, which is a really negative, pessimistic look out, uh, outlook on what I think is happening. But that's just the thing away the guys. I just don't think that I don't think people in this country care enough about the art, uh, care about the arts as much as they do in other. As, well, either as much as we wish they would, or as much as we know they do in other countries. I want to finish up with just a couple of lighter questions. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this one's going to Dave. Um, you have talked a little bit about you've got a home studio. You've I, I, I you mentioned in one episode. And I've got to note it down. Um, I think it was either you played in a band or you were, are playing in a band. I can't remember which it was. Mm. But uh, you, you, as you mentioned, playing guitar from a very young age. Talk a little bit about your history with being an actual musician and um, you know how that's sort of worked out for you. Yeah. Um, so I started playing when I was six. Um, I actually found my dad's old 12-string, which I still have, um, underneath my bed. And I'd pulled it out one night and dad sort of saw me and said, oh, do you want me to teach you a couple of things? Because dad, dad played when he was younger and such. 
and I sort of stuck to it like shit to a blanket. So um, I kept going with it and, um, you know, eventually graduated to electric guitar and da 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 as the rest goes. Um, my dad actually took me to see John Fogarty in concert in 1998 for the Premonition World Tour. And I think that was kind of the moment when I knew that I really wanted to be a musician um, because I wanted to do what that guy was doing, you know. Um, little did I know that prog was going to come in. Um, so, yeah, so I was doing that for, for quite some time. And then when I was uh, 18, 19, I started to get into the session world. So um, I've sessioned on a few albums um, around Australia and, and internationally as well. Um, I was in the US for a little while, um, in Nashville, doing some session work over there. Um, I played in Europe a little bit when I was living over there, but not professionally, just, you know, open mic nights and get up and jam with a blues band and things like that. It was a lot of fun. Um, but now back in Sydney, um, yeah, I've got a studio, home studio. Um, I try and do some production work. I've, I've done some production work mostly. It's really interesting because I'm massive, massive prog head and I love, that sort of Americana country sort of stuff. I love producing that sort of stuff because it's a lot. It's a lot of fun, particularly female vocalists and things like that. Um, it's really, really good. Um, I quite, I quite enjoy doing that. Um, that's sort of, I suppose, it in a nutshell. Um, but to further to your question about me being in a band, I was in a band for for a few years um, called Nothing Like You. Um, that I eventually left that band due to um, creative differences, basically. Um, there's a little bit more to it than that, but I won't, won't go out and sort of call that sort of stuff out on, online. Um, but then I've, I've now formed another band. We've actually got our first rehearsal next weekend. Um, so everything's written, everything's ready to rock and roll, and we're basically gearing up for when lockdown ends to do some shows and do some trial of some of the stuff that we've written and so on and so forth. So I'm really looking forward to getting back on the stage. Um, I'm actually halfway through building my new pedal board right at the moment for it. So I'm just waiting on some parts to come from the US. So looking forward to it. What kind of band? Uh, it's a prog metal kind of stuff, um, but leaning more toward uh, it's sort of you can hear hoggy's heard some of the stuff um you can hear a lot of my influences in it so it's very much um that melodic mainstream influence in it but there's a lot of dream theater in there there's a lot of tool there's a lot of porcupine tree um it's going to be really interesting because i've written all the parts but i've said to the other musos hey look i'm not a drummer i'm not a bass player you know put your own flavor on this so i'm really interested to hear what they come up with um, I've heard one of the scratch tracks so far um, for the, the drummer did and uh, just, yeah, yeah righto, okay, <laughs> unbelievable. So I'm really, really looking forward to it. Um, the band's called Proclivity. Um, we've, got a, we've got a website um, or Facebook already um, with a couple of little teaser videos and such up on there. Very, very political. Um, there's a lot of stuff about, you know, climate change and what's happening in Hong Kong. And interestingly, I wrote a song called At the Enemy's Gate and I wrote all the lyrics for it and everything like that because it was about what was going on in Hong Kong and everything like that. And then all of a sudden, all this Black Lives Matter stuff started happening, all the protests and everything like that over in the US. And the US is sort of descending into chaos. And I'm like, fuck, well, the lyrics can sort of almost be used interchangeably there about the protests there and the protests in Hong Kong. And it's it's really interesting when things like that 
happen and you're on the writing end of it, not on the reporting end of it. So it'll be interesting to see how it all comes out. Mm. Having such a variety of experience, how does that inform your opinions as a person who listens to and enjoys music? Probably makes me more of a snob than I'd care to admit. Um, <laughs> um, I think the main thing is that the thing that the thing that I always look at is I look at it and go, there are three things that can potentially happen when you listen to a new piece of music. You'll either love it, you'll hate it, or you'll just shrug it off. Um, for me, I always go to music with an open mind. I always go with something because I always think I'm going to take something away from it, no matter what it is. Um, and that's except kind for of, that Scott Walker record. Sorry, except for that Scott Walker record. Yeah, well, we're not talking about Scott Walker. Um, <laughs> um, that was oh, fuck. That was a bad album. Um, you know. So I wonder if you take the Scott Walker album and you just speed it up by like three or four times if you get that new shit that Stephen Wilson's pumping out. Um, so the... <laughs> I feel like that's something we should do. Now. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to try that. Um, so yeah, how it informs... I try not to come across as a music snob, but the reality is I have so much experience in it that I can hear a lot of stuff that a lot of people necessarily don't necessarily hear. And you sort of get labeled as a bit of a snob when you know you're listening to something and someone comes to you and they go oh listen to this new song and you go yeah cool marillion did that 15 years ago you know and it's nothing new i think this is one of the big issues is because there's such a wide variety of music that i've listened to over my jesus what are we now 24 years of being involved in music in the way i am you inevitably run across the same things Right, And I think this is one of the things that prog always appealed to me was because it was so different and every album was different and you had such a wide variety of different sounds. And I think this is one of the issues now with what is prog. I think the the idea of prog has kind of changed a little bit in that now prog seems to be gent and I don't necessarily subscribe to that idea. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I just... How it's informed my opinion is probably that I'm becoming, I'm much more open-minded, but I'm becoming much more picky with what I like. I, I don't know if you'll have an answer for this one because it's a, just a random weird question, but if one broken up band could release an album and you knew it would be good, who would it be? Pink Floyd. Ooh, that's a good one. <clears throat> I don't know if they're- Assuming we can resurrect members, but you know. Well, if uh, you've got all the power in the world at the moment. <laughs> no, okay. If we're talking about resurrection of members, then yeah, Rush, 100%. Um, talking about bands where everyone is still on this earth, um, Ocean Size, I think. Oh, yeah, that'd be good. And Ocean, uh, new Ocean Size, or new Isis record. Mm. Um, or the Beatles, if you're talking resurrection again. Yeah. Ooh, that's another good one. Um,. If, like, if I don't know if Gen, I don't know if Genesis, if Genesis got back together and released now, would it be any good? I don't know. <clears throat> and then, then, then you get into like which era of Genesis do you want? Do you yeah, want the exactly. Peter Gabriel fronted version or do you want the Phil Collins one? And to finish off, what have you been listening to, reading, or watching, or playing lately? <sighs> I li- I was going to say I listened to a gargantuan number of podcasts. 
Um, I think I've got something like 16 podcasts now. Um, it's quite the popular thing to do, actually, if you're a musician, to start your own podcast. Um, something that we have tongue-in-cheek complained about on the show before. Um, so uh, the ones I have been listening to, actually, uh, Devin Townsend's podcast, where he's going through each of his own albums. That is a, that, If you haven't heard that, that's a really, really interesting deep dive into the albums and the time in his life when he made them. Uh, he sticks podcasts into that one. Anathema's one is really good. That's more like a traditional sort of radio show, though. Um, those two are very good. Uh, and then I've got a whole bunch of other podcasts that are just like sort of random two dudes talking podcasts that I listen to. One that's called Analog, uh, a podcast that I'm slowly trudging my way through their back catalogue of 400 plus episodes. There's another one called Roderick on the Line. Um, that's quite good. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a couple, um, watching, um, I don't really watch a lot of television really, to be honest. Uh, and the reading that I do, I mainly listen to audio books for that. Um, one book actually I did finish, did finish reading again, which is very quite, which is really quite good actually. And remarkably prescient for what's going on in the world right now. Uh, it's a book by Peter Grester, the, uh, the journalist, uh, the one who was locked up in Egypt on alleged terrorism charges, which were totally bullshit. Uh, the book's called The First Casualty, and it's about how the media has kind of gotten in the middle of um, conflicts around the world and their need or their the need from the governments for them to be more partisan towards them rather than actually being the fourth estate, mm. which is something that keeps happening time and time and time again. And this in, all over the world, it's not just an American problem or a problem in the Middle East, it's everywhere. Yep. Um, for me... Um I, I don't know, probably people actually know this if they listen to the thematic interview. Um, I'm a massive gamer. So um, what I've been playing at the moment is I, I play uh, online uh, with some friends of mine, um, a great game called Stellaris, which is kind of like Civ Six in space, but it's not turn-based. Um, so that's a really, really fun game. Um, also, Borderlands, a pre-sequel, because I've never played it, and it was for free on the Epic Game Store the other day. I was like, yeah, cool, I'll take that. Um, watching, I'm watching an absolutely hilarious and fantastic show called The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, um, on Amazon. Uh, just awesome. I'm not going to spoil it for you. Definitely go and, go and check that out. It's, it's a hell of a lot of, uh, it's a hoot. Um, yeah, that's kind of, kind of, sort of, uh, the moment. reading, um, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. <laughs> a little bit late to the party on that one. <laughs> just, a, um, just a little bit. But um, yeah, but since when have I ever been you know won over by trends? Um, that's a good point. You are so, you are talking to a man who still hasn't watched Breaking Bad. Yes, and that's something that needs to change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, it's on the list. So so yeah, I suppose that's that's it. Um, I'm actually delving a lot at the moment in the kitchen. I'm doing a lot of stuff. Um, I'm I'm a big cook. I'm a big foodie. Um, I love good food and I like making it myself. Um, as we speak, actually, at the moment, there's a there's a uh, pizza sauce on the oven, uh, on the um, on the kitchen top, fucking stove top. Is what I'm looking for. Um, so it's currently bubbling away, and it will be turned into pizzas in about a half an hour. Um, I made a tiramisu this afternoon. Big fan of binging with Babish and yes, and, um, love Joshua binging Weisman with love binging with Babish, all that. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's a whole bunch of stuff that that I think goes on in uh, in the background there. Um, yeah, so I, I, I consume a lot of my media online and, and all that sort of stuff. I'm not really a television sort of person. Um, I don't read a lot 
but when I do, I try and finish a book and then just leave it as is. I should probably read more than I do, but yeah. I think every I think everybody says that though. Everyone thinks that they should read more than they do. That's why I started getting into audiobooks actually. Audiobooks for me only work with non-fiction titles. Trying to read trying to do audiobooks for fiction is just a complete disaster. So I listen to a lot of non-fiction in my audiobooks. <laughs>